Can we not talk about not playing golf because you're not playing golf? I am playing golf though this weekend. Oh yeah. It's the annual wines and spirits competition. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Well, it is good because those Christmas presents won't win themselves. <laughs> what, happens in a, <laughs> what happens in a wines and spirits competition? It, at, at York, where I play, it's actually really interesting because there's two separate competitions, I think. Or well, maybe they're all combined into one. But anyway, there's two lots. There's an AM shotgun start and a PM shotgun start. Strensel York do quite a lot of shotgun starts in winter because you can get obviously more people about, can't you? I really like them. I, I think they're a really good idea. We sort of spin around the course in three and a half hours. I can tee off at 12 because morning golf is like a massive problem for me with a small child and a wife who likes to do park run. So I can sort of get there for 12 o'clock, spin around. It's not dark, or it might just be getting dark yeah, yeah. when we finish, and it's, it's really, really good. So that's, uh, is it three balls, four balls? Three. So you get 54 golfers out twice. Yeah, how many have we got? There's 157, I think, in Sunday's comp overall. 78, I think, can do the maths. Right. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a decent, it's a yeah, decent yeah. sort of AM, PM turnout. I think what's really good about that is as well as you sort of there's a real good atmosphere in the bar afterwards yeah yeah amazing yeah because you get lots of people in at one time which i think is underrated about i know it's i know obviously the bar staff are really busy but there is something about being in the clubhouse at half past four when there's a lot of people there when yeah. normally they'd be very easy to yeah. staff as well because you just need a couple of people there for two hours rather than dribbling all, along all day yeah um, and yeah. And what do people think about it? Because do people moan about the lack of flexibility. What if I don't want to play at eight? Or what if I don't want to be, play at 12? I don't think so. Um, maybe the committee will tell me differently if I ask them. But yeah. no, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's massively helpful to me. So I only look at it, I suppose, from my own blinkered perspective. And what do you win? So you just win booze, do you, basically? Yeah, well, having not won last year, I assume in a wines and spirits competition, you're going to win wines and spirits. Right, so you're hoping to sort of stock the fridge for Christmas. Yeah, otherwise it's going to get expensive. Cost of living, Tom. Perhaps, please, please, no. Also been to the gym, Steve. Oh, don't! <laughs> I can't believe you just stitched me up on the podcast with that one. We're talking about this is what we all, this is what golfers should be like. I remember once reading a uh, thing in today's golfer in like 1993, presumably, about winter golf, and it was like uh, saying what different types of winter golf there are. And there's people who go and play and then moan about how bad it is because the course is wet and the weather's terrible. Uh, there's people who don't do anything and sit at home and read golf magazines and watch the telly. And there's other people who use the opportunity to better themselves, Steve, and they grind it out on the range. And these days, they get in a golf-specific gym. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I'd probably prefer not to be doing it. But um, as I'm sure many of our listeners can sympathise with, I am now of a certain age mm -hmm. where things are not quite as taut as they used to be. <laughs> and I'd like... I'd like to, um, I'd like to keep my glory days going for at least a couple more years. I, know I don't want to. I don't want to like succumb and surrender to a beer belly just yet. So what's so. the uh, what's the plan here? What's the motivation? Is it because you want to be able to 
do those Lyle and Scott clothes justice, or is it because you want to maintain the yards, add some yards? I've never had many yards to begin with, metaphorically and literally. Um, so, so no, it's 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 about. Uh, I need to combine it with diet. So um, I tend to be a bit faddy about things, and I get into a vogue, and I'm currently in one where um, I'm at a midpoint where I think if I let this go, I could actually um, I could actually get quite portly. Health kick, crazy. You said earlier that you weigh 13 stone, right? I think it's about 12 and a half. Right. So I think the last time I weighed 12 and a half stone, I might have been 10. Yeah, my fighting weight is a good stone lighter. I'm yeah. a, I'm I'm a slight frame. It's hard. And I'm five foot eight. It's hard to take seriously. The lowest I've ever been, and the most happiest I've ever been with my weight was I was I, I lost three stone in three months, and I bet it was the most. Ex- I, I mean, like people would basically say, if you do this diet now, you kill yourself, and I probably would. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be in serious trouble. I basically cut out nearly all fat from mm-hmm. my diet, and I lost three stone. I was ten and a half, and it was beautiful, Tom. I could have basically been a, I could have been a junk jockey. Like a piece of marble. Well, the problem was it was just impossible to maintain. Mm. So that's good. I'm, I'm glad you're trying to better yourself, Steve. Well, ask me in three weeks if I'm still trying to better myself. Uh, so I haven't played golf either. I did go to yet another driving range with my eldest son on uh, Saturday afternoon. I'm trying to, uh, I, I remember Eddie Peppel tweeted about if he had a child, he'd just be getting high hands and then shallow the shit out of it. And that's what I'm telling my seven-year-old. So we spent- Are you a, using that particular language? We had, <laughs> we had an hour grinding away. It's quite difficult because I'm not sure he really understands what can't you lay it off me, or please can you shallow it a bit more? So are we going to see you- Can you get into your left side a bit earlier? I mean, there's all these like books, aren't there? 100 greatest courses. Are you going to do 100 greatest driving ranges in the UK? It's a bit like that, yeah. I'm just a bit worried about, don't really know what sort of parent to be really, sporting parent. It's really hard not to be a pushy dad. Uh, but I'm sort of very happy that he's, my eldest son particularly, seems to be into his sport. And I'm not sure if it's just because he wants to please me or he's actually into it. You never quite know, so he's sort of carrying around this guilt all the time. Anyway, we were there for two hours on Saturday and we did, we got some sticks out and we were doing some proper drills. He seems to quite like it. So yeah, sort of like a, latter-day Butch Harmon sort of figure is kind of how I'd like to see it. Once he starts talking about GIR and you've got him hooked. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. I don't want to say anything to... I just want him to like... I don't know. I'd like to be able to play golf then that'd be better. And then when we have these chats I can say yes we went to play golf. But it's not quite at that stage yet. Well you're not far away though are you? No, I don't think so. You can hit it about 100 yards reliably. So we can I think. Junior tees are not far away. Yeah, we need a bit of that. So we're going to try and talk about club governance a little bit, aren't we? And specifically the roles of committees, um, how that's changed, whether they're good things, bad things. Um, the good, the bad and the ugly of golf club committees. There you go, there's the headline. The good, the bad and the ugly of golf club committees. So yeah, I think, it's, I, I think we should get our creds out to start off with. Because um, this is a sort of world that we live in, isn't it? Um, so I am a... I'm on the marketing committee at my golf club, I'm not on the main committee. Um, I think I've, I'm also a governor at my kids' school, which I think is quite a good parallel. Um, and as a business, we work with uh, the Golf Club Managers Association, yeah. who are a body that represents golf club managers, effectively educates golf club managers. Um, and their interaction with committees is obviously a big thing. Um, 
So we're kind of in this space, we're in the sort of, uh, this is where we live and breathe in the sort of games administration and you have been on committees. Yes, uh, I was on the committee of a proprietary club for six years. What is a proprietary club, Steve? Come on. It is a club owned by somebody. Private members clubs are owned by the members. Proprietary clubs are owned by corporations, business people. It's owned by somebody. So I think that's the easiest way yeah. to put it. So you were, you were on a committee at a commercial golf club, basically. <clears throat> yeah, I was captain there. Um, I am between committee positions at the moment, but <laughs> let's see if I can find my way, hint, hint. And that was at Sunburn, was it? That was at Sunburn in York, yeah. Okay, so we kind of, I'm not saying we know what we're talking about, but we have been in this sort of area for quite a while in various different forms. I guess the sort of, the pervading attitude amongst people is that committees are bad, right? And they're wrong. <laughs> But if we start with if we start with if we start with that, like if we were trying to sort of mount a case for committees being bad, like what is what is that typical view? Do you think of of the badness what, yeah. of the bad of bad committees? Yeah. Uh, intractability, um, the length of time it can take to make a decision. I mean, that's not uniformly to private members clubs. I've sat in meetings where we've talked for hours and still not made a decision. Um, People need to do it for holistic and virtuous reasons, and not everyone does. Some people do it because they want to slap the badge on their shoulder and say, look at me. And there definitely is some of that about committees. Um, I think they change too quickly a lot of the time. I think that, you know, that, um, that this was fine when golf clubs were... 1910, 1920s, and not everything was as financially serious as it is now. But golf clubs are businesses now, and they need to be run like businesses. And I don't think, you know, continual changing of positions at some clubs um, necessarily uh, leads to good decision making because when you have a lot of changeover of people, new people come in and they might have different ideas. And you know, they, golf tried to do this, well, getting, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but golf tried to do this with like structured business plans, five-year plans and stuff like that. Problem was that new committee would come in and they'd say, I don't like that plan, we're gonna develop another plan. Um, there's been great strides, I think, to, to change some of this over the past few years. Governance has become absolutely huge in golf, not just at local level, but pushed by governing bodies as well, like England Golf, like GCMA, like the CMA like the PGA, you know, they're all getting into the governance sphere, aren't they, mm -hmm. trying to give people advice and help. Um, but when golf club committees are bad, it's awful for everyone because, especially at private members clubs, because, you know, the committee essentially run the club and if they don't know what they're doing, then the direction of the club is really bad. And particularly if you've got a picky committee that won't let a golf club manager manage. So... Yeah, so I think at their worst, they're sort of suits corners, aren't they? Yeah. Um, for private eye readers, where there's an awful lot of uh, posturing goes on, um, and committees are, I guess, in some in some clubs, they're kind of uh, like you say, like a badge of honour. It's something that you kind of a bit like being the club captain. It's something that after a certain amount of years service at the club or membership at the club, you get the tap on the shoulder and you're asked to join the main committee or a subcommittee 
um, and it's kind of an honourable thing to do. Um, which I kind of like, don't mind that at all, like uh, loyalty to a golf club ought to be rewarded in some way. But then if you're, if you're then on that committee, that you are then part of the club's infrastructure, right? So the club that you've committed to for so long uh, and you've paid lots of money to over the years is now relying on you for kind of leadership and direction and to help with its governance. But often that is kind of, I think, confused with um, trying to show how clever you are. That's one of the big problems um, that I've sort of witnessed is that it's not necessarily about trying to do something for the good of the club, it's to try to enhance one's own reputation by showing that you know more about finance or marketing or whatever else. There's, there's a few things that people say about committees, um, and, and it's not me that's saying this, it's people who know committees but, and, and talk about when they go bad. And the first is that you know, peop some people who run su very successful businesses forget how they run that business mm -hmm. when they sort of go into a golf club committee. They kind of leave all their expertise at the door. The other is about, and it's partly about the sort of backslapping nature of having that kind of responsibility, but a number of managers would, would tell me, I mean, I'm going back three or four years here, but they would tell me they would spend a lot of time preparing for, you know, like a monthly committee meeting. They'd send out all of this paperwork in advance and you'd see the committee members like opening the envelope for the first time as they walk through the door. I mean, they're like, they're urban myths there, but they are true to yeah. a certain extent at some clubs. And um, for for a, com a committee to it's it's terrible in a sense isn't it because um these people are volunteers so they're volunteering their time they don't get paid for it um, we're going to get to the good bits in a minute at the moment but, but what i mean by that is and i know we'll get to this again but what i mean by that is how much can you expect of someone if if you're not rewarding them in some way for it um you know and some people's uh, personality will mean that they will do more than others. Yeah, yeah. But there, there, is, a, there is also a strong counter-argument that says if you're not willing to commit the time and try and do the job properly, then don't bother doing it in the first place. True. But we, this, uh, I'm a governor at school, and this comes up quite a lot, and it's the easiest thing in the world to hide behind, say, shrug your shoulders and say, I'm just a volunteer. It covers up all manner of sins. But at the end of the day, the governance system props up loads of state schools and the committee structure props up loads of golf clubs in terms of how well or badly they're run. So it just doesn't, uh, the, I'm just a volunteer thing, just doesn't wash with me at all. Um, I think the thing about uh, it blocking decisions is valid that you raise. Um, so the sort of cliche decision by committee never works because how do you get people to agree? Um, and there's something, there's something even more practical than that, it's just frequency of meeting. So I don't know how of, how often would a main committee meet typically? Do you think? I'm not quite sure in private members clubs because um, I'm relatively new to them after a long time away. I can tell you how it worked at at proprietary. We used to meet once a quarter, invariably, so yeah. four times a year, and then we would meet again um, if we had something we really needed to discuss. Um, obviously. Uh, in a, in a proprietary club, the, the, the owner is making the business decisions, so the role is slightly different. I mean, we're not, you're not as hands-on. Mm. You, know, you, you can advise and you can sort of give your opinion, but ultimately, if the owner wants to do what they want to do, they're going to do it, yeah. um, whether you like it or not. You, you're sort of there in an advisory role. Where we had a lot of responsibility at the proprietary was in terms of competitions, which actually suited us quite well because we understood intrinsically that you know it wasn't up to us to say to the to say to the proprietor 
not really sure you should be building that hotel or whatever. I'm using that as an example. Yeah. But, but you know, but there was a lot of expertise within our group about rules, like me, World Handicap System, how you run a successful competition. You know, the kind of things that can go wrong, and ultimately. At, at that proprietary level that's all the members are really bothered about because they walk into it knowing it's not their club as well mm -hmm. or they should unless they're stupid you know they know that they they can moan as much as they like but ultimately they're not going to be making decisions so in a proprietary club what you want from your experience i think is you want club life to be good you want the clubhouse to be good and you want competitions to be good and that's where a proprietary committee can have a real influence because so i hope you won't mind me saying this but certainly at sandburn I got the feeling that the proprietor there sort of trusted us to get on with that. And so the, the circumstances in which we worked, worked really well. We were quite a very cohesive unit. He ran the golf club from the financial point of view, from the decision making and from the looking to the future. We made sure that the day-to-day -day stuff in terms of competitions and, and administration went as it should. It worked, it worked really nicely, actually. But I think that sort of that is the point I'm making is that that if you've got this frequency of meeting that's quarterly, um, and you're the type of committee that hasn't um, that hasn't uh, delegated authority for decision making to the secretary or the general manager in a private member's setup then that take, means decisions take forever. Yeah, and, and that is the problem with that, with that kind of quarterly meeting. I mean, our meetings would go on. Yeah. You know, you could start at sort of seven, half seven, and you could be still at it at half ten, by which point everyone had like, lost the will to live. I mean, I remember, I can't go into absolute specifics, but I can remember like, a specific example about golf course architecture, furniture. Architecture is yeah. not right. Specifically example about golf course furniture, where we talked for three hours, and we still haven't made a decision on it. By the end, it then went into another meeting. Yeah, yeah, um, right. So, the, so, so that that is that I think is pretty typical, where you cannot get people to agree um, because there's. I think. Well, first of all, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what the role of a committee is. Like, so you talk about examples of um, where you've had general managers sort of saying, "Well, I did all this prep for the committee, and it's really obvious they haven't read the stuff in advance." Like, so like good meeting practice and these people would know this because they've been CEOs and finance directors and marketing directors in their real lives and um, good meeting practice is to circulate minutes notes and minutes and documents in advance read them in advance so the meeting just becomes a simple case of ratifying documents basically committees I think think that they are there to discuss the issues of the day and they're the ones that are debating and they're the ones who are um, making the decisions there and then but but then that's not their role at all. But, um, they, but they think it is. Yeah. And, and this goes on to um, why I think really makes golf club committees bad is when they won't let the golf club manager manage. And this is still happening, right? Yeah. I mean, I've heard recent examples of it, you know, where uh, people I've spoken to have left because they said, well, they just wouldn't let me get on with it. You know, they, and they brought me in with this idea that, well, you're the expert, we'll let you do it. And then they just, it comes to the crunch and they just can't help themselves. Yeah. And I understand that because you, you, sort of, you, you they're so keen to get involved that, and they genuinely think that they're being helpful. Mm -hmm. um, that you know the, the sort of compulsion yeah. is, is is very strong, but it leads to ma I think when when that situation happens, you know the whole relationship between the manager and the committee quickly disintegrates actually, and then the club's left with no real direction at all. I think that is I think that's very very common. Um, so I think when we get to why committees could be good, I think the, one, of the, one of the problems that committees have is 
that they are supposed to represent the views of the membership. But what actually happens is, I think they end, they end up representing the views of their particular pocket of the membership. Yeah. So it'll be their cohort's view on what fee should be, or what we should do with the tree on the 17th, or what we should do um, about provision of a pro shop moving forward. It won't be representative of the club as a whole, it'll be the people that they socialise with. Do, do you not find that that's representative of golf in general though? I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm finding a new club that it's quite hard to break through cliques. Mm. People are like really nice, they're extremely welcoming, but it's, it's very hard to sort of break into established groups. Mm. So the whole of the environment is little pockets of people who have, yeah. and then if you're in a wider group that it has a disproportionate say, then like if you've got sort of 30 or 40 people, for example, who have been there a long time and they're all clubbed together, then they're going to have a massive say, can't they, in what a committee does, it's because like the, they're, the, they're the ones that are shouting the loudest. It's like the, um, the Tory party backbenchers, whatever they're called, the 18, what are they called? The 1922 committee, but I, I, I think the ERG would be a more yeah. fitting example. But these sort of cohorts of effectively like hardcore lobbyists who ha hold the power, that's, what, that's how it operates in private clubs. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the idea is, the idea is that you rightly say that it should, the representatives should be from as broad a spectrum, as wide a, a spectrum yeah. as the membership as possible. But in reality, how does that... Well, these How days, does that happen? Because people have to volunteer, don't they, to go onto the committee? Or well, these days we have things like surveys that we can do to find out what people think about different things. So I think that the the idea that we need to have people from the the membership there to represent the members' views is probably a thing of the past to an extent because we can find that out through different means. I think another problem with committee people is that they they may well set off with um, sort of very well-intentioned, like I'll volunteer to be on whatever committee or I'll volunteer to do any sort of volunteering job. Um, and then you have this sort of initial flush of enthusiasm. Um, and unless you're retired or unless you have got lots of time on your hands or unless you're particularly committed, things will get in the way of that. Um, it's really, really difficult to prioritise something that you're not being paid for, that's not your job of work, that's not your family, um, and say, actually, that's my priority. Um, but that's what being on committee means. It means giving up your time over the, over the long term. And that's really hard. Um, it's particularly hard if you've also got the wrong end of the stick and, and you're trying to do the job, or do a job in the club. So I think I see that a lot where um, the, the role of the committee is to basically ratify what the operational staff at the golf club are doing and to hold those people to account. So yes, they might sense check the decisions that a general manager is making um, or they might sense check the sort of direction that the head of greens is planning to take, but they're not trying to be the greenkeeper. They're not trying to be. They shouldn't be trying to be the club's marketing officer. They shouldn't be trying to be the club's finance officer. And that's often what you see. And I think that's fine. But you have to then stick with it. You can't like think I'll do that for a couple of weeks and get bored of it. Do you, Do you think that the wider issue there is that no one tells people what's expected? And, and what and what they need to do because I think that people I'm not saying there isn't handover and I know that England Golf have tried to do this with governance documents um, you know to try and, but they used to going like way back there used to be this there was this book wasn't there that was produced I can't but that you can buy it I think at like old bookshops which is the role of a golf club committee member which tried to spell out actually what was going to be expected of them and I don't think there's enough of that. Well, or, or I think that people go the other way, Tom, and I think they think, 
I can't go on the committee because I'm going to like be spending all of my time doing it when that's on the other side not necessarily the case either. Well, it shouldn't be. No, it should be relatively light, a light touch thing. Where, so in the in school governance, which and by the way, I think it's an absolute nonsense that the education system is propped up by volunteers. Like, how ridiculous is that? But it is at the moment. They are trying to move away from it. Right enough. You basically have three separate tasks. One is. Uh, strategic direction of the school. One is make sure the school doesn't run out of money. One is hold the te- head teacher to account. That's it. That's your role. Um, and there is endless training courses that you go on about how to do certain things or what the role is on on your uh, as of a governor. Endless training courses, most of which are online. Really, really good. Um, and loads of, like pro forma stuff. So if you need, if you need to do a visit, like if you want to go and check what the sports master's doing, you get a form for what you should be checking and what you should be writing down. Um, so you kind of, you, you're held, your hand is held through the process. So education is much more important than golf clubs, right? But some of that um, good practice is so relevant to golf clubs where I think if, if people understood the job better, the job would be done better and it would take um, less time. So we have a thing at school, uh, on, as a school governor, where you have a skills audit of your governing body to say, do we have someone with HR experience? Do we have someone with um, finance experience? Do we have someone with legal experience? So you get a balance of skills on the governing body. So when the head teacher needs support or when there's an issue in the school, there's always an expert to rely on. Some of that, I think, is really relevant to golf club committees rather than it just being, oh, well, it's John's turn or it's Anne's turn. So we'll have them on. Do you think that that process is universal across schools? So will Will, will every school yeah and, and that's the point I'm starting to get to here which is that that, that isn't the case in golf is it I mean no. there, there is it's like 2,300 in the UK separate entities and each of them sort of do their own thing I know there are similarities of approach but if I look at like the role of a captain for example I was a captain at a proprietary club it was a show role you basically went out there shook hands gave speeches went to the wider place and basically tried to you know big up the club at some clubs, the captain is the almighty, has a position of absolute power and is the one that is essentially making the decisions. Other places, it's in between. Um, so that I was really interested to hear you talking about education there because you could go and be a school governor somewhere else and you'd know it's exactly the same process and exactly the same opportunities or training would be available to you. But you don't have that at golf because it's such a wide and disparate area that... Well, it's, it's, the, it's the governance of the game, isn't it? So... We obviously work with the Golf Club Managers Association who look after the education of golf club managers, but that is something that you enter into voluntarily. You don't have to be part of the GCMA. Um, England Golf um, are responsible for amateur golf in England, Scottish golf the same in Scotland, Welsh golf the same in Wales. Um, But they they don't have any jurisdiction to tell golf clubs what to do. They can advise on best practice of what a committee member should be doing or what a general manager should be doing and what your policy should be on this, but they can't they can't tell you to do it. They're not an education body in that sense. Um, they don't, yeah, they don't feed, they don't fund you, therefore they can't cut you off or if you're not doing things in the right way. So I think that, that part of that issue is the, go- the governance of the game as a whole. Um, and that leads to a lot of, I think, yeah, f- funny setups on committees, funny ideas about what the role of the committee involves most of which are all well-intentioned and come from a good place, but 
don't end up being the best thing for the club. So how long will you spend as a school governor? Do you have like a fixed term? Four years. Four years, do you think yeah. that's long enough? I think it's probably about right, yeah. I don't know if they've designed it, it's not, it's not linked to, I mean like my kids are both at school, that's why I'm doing it. Mm. Um, and I, most people I think would start when their kids are in reception and finish when they leave. Um, but yeah, I think, that is, I think that is probably about right, yeah. So presumably then, I mean, we, we're looking at similar terms, aren't we, at, um, at golf clubs. I think at, I think at mine, a director serves three years, can then be re-elected up to a maximum of nine, I think, which is obviously a long, long time, but there's re-elections within that. I think a lot of other committees would be looking at, what, two-year terms to six years probably in total, which is... The point I was moving to is one of the big criticisms of committees is that they turn over too quickly and that you get used to a committee and then you know the manager or the rest of the club have got familiarity with how they're going to do it and then it's a new set of people in which necessarily disrupt. But I suppose given that you know school governance works quite well um, and you're on four-year terms, I suppose it's not so much the length of term as the structure within which you operate then. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think and like, there are good school governing bodies and bad ones, yeah. like, and I don't think the system's perfect. I just think it's an interesting parallel where you've got volunteers running little businesses, basically, or being the pseudo-boards of effective business, uh, little businesses. Um, so what, what do we think the positives are of committees? Like you... You wrote a piece in 2019 entitled "Why It's the End of Golf Cup Committees." Yeah, and you've now changed your mind. Yeah, to a point because I've, I've become more educated about it. The, the thing that I hated about golf club committees the most was the amount of time they took. I mean, I used the analogy of you know if you drop into a supermarket to buy a loaf of bread, you don't hold a meeting with the family before you do it. Do you? you just so, you just do it. I've just read that. Um, it's, it's, it's a simple analogy, but it, it, it talks about some of the things that you were saying earlier on, that decisions within subcommittees, can, which then have to go to committees, which then might necessarily have to go to the membership, depending on their seriousness, can take an awful long time. And awful long decision-making does not do particularly well. And, and I've mentioned again some of the frustrations, because it was true at that time as it is now, of golf club managers. Um, and that committee structure is basically a hundred years old, in essence, it really hasn't. I mean, I know there's some move towards boards, maybe we'll talk about boards a little bit, but in general, you know, that kind of main committee, subcommittee structure has been in place for a long, long time. It's probably not fit for purpose. However, you know, within that, these people are, as you said, volunteers, and they genuinely, I think, in the main, want the best for their golf club they step up because they're passionate about the club and they maybe have been there a long time or maybe they're pretty new and they're sort of flush with emotion about it but they are like really really positive about wanting to make a good impact on that golf club and i don't think you can bottle a feeling like that i think there's a lot to be said for it you know we live in a world where it's quite hard to get people to do stuff you know committees will tell you it's getting very difficult now to find a captain or a vice captain because people don't want to step forward. So I think that when you find people who are willing to do it, that is a virtue that should be absolutely embraced, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, I agree. I think there's a lot, a lot of positives of um, committee structures and in lots of clubs. And I think, th like, 
the place I would start with it is that the um, the general manager, the CEO, the, the whatever, is always going to be an employee, right? And they might do an amazing job, they might be the best general manager, the best paid secretary going, but they also might be looking for the next job or whatever else. So, and that's obviously, that's entirely up to them. Um, it's their career, and that is a different relationship with the place than being a member and um, being somewhere where you choose to spend your free time. And like we all know about long-serving secretaries, managers, don't get me wrong, who absolutely love their place of work and have been there many, many years. Um, but I think there is something in uh, committee people who are sort of passing on the, the club way. And lots of clubs have nuanced ways of doing things. They do things because they've always been done like that. And some of those things are obviously silly and should be got rid of, but some of those things are the fabric of the club and that requires a kind of chain of members to pass yeah. it on. And if you look at a, a club, they won't mind me saying this, I'm sure, um, if you look at a club where governance has gone well is, is, and committee structure has really worked for them, it's something like Seton Carew, where they were basically in a lot, a lot of trouble and some people came together who'd been at the club for a long, long period of time and adored the place and they said, right, we're going to sort this out. Yeah. And that sort of enthusiasm and drive to do that and now they're what? top 50 just about in our rankings everyone's like adores the course they made a very brilliant appointment of a greenkeeper um, you know when when, it, when all the stars align it can it can produce some fantastic things can't it yeah i think that is a great example absolutely great example the other the other um area where they're positive is these things can a good committee good people on good committees hugely cost effective thing for the golf club so a general manager or office staff cannot be experts in everything. Um, I think secretaries and general managers of golf clubs are asked to do a lot of things. They need to know about HR, they need to know about marketing, they need to know about finance, they need to know about food and beverage, they need to know about greenkeeping, blah, 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 blah. It's impossible. Um, and as um, the managers of small businesses, they will on occasion need to bring in expert financial advice, expert HR advice, expert marketing advice and these things are expensive so if you can lean on skilled committee members for that occasional uh, freelance uh, consultancy type advice then that's an amazing benefit for the club why would you not lean on members who can bring those sorts of things to the party and i, and I think uh, golf club governance is shifting that way with the move from sort of big main committees to smaller boards that are skills based that have someone who's an expert in finance because they run a finance company or or they're, they're doing the marketing job because that's their, that's their place of work, they're marketing experts. And I think as that, we're sort of half a dozen years down the line with that now. Um, and I think we're starting to see some fruit of that. That doesn't mean that they still can't get it wrong. Of course they can. Um, but the idea of, of, like you say, of having people in charge who actually know the areas they're talking about, know them intimately, um, is probably very helpful for golf going forward. Yeah, I think yes, I think that is that is definitely the, the correct direction of travel. Um, I think I, I mean I've seen it done really well. Like the club I'm a member at is obviously a very private members club. We've got committees coming out of our ears, so we still have a arm secretary. Um, we still have we have subcommittees for golf. We have subcommittees for greens, house marketing. Uh, and we have the main exec committee. I think that might be it. Might be another one. Certainly, those those um, 
four or five. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, some people sit on all of those committees. Um, the membership at Old Woodley tend to be professional classes, so doctors, lawyers, accountants, um, and very successful in those fields. They've worked for big firms and understand what good looks like. Um, and they've achieved some really, really good things, like the, um, our recently departed, not recently departed, our, our last Greens chair um, did a phenomenal job in terms of a strategic vision for the club, the, um, the, the golf course was able to kind of lobby the membership to get behind that strategic vision in a way that perhaps a head of Greens or employee wouldn't have been able to do. He was had enough foresight to bring in external advice in terms of architects and shapers to come and talk about what the golf course should look like. But he did that in a way that involved the head of Greens and then let the head of Greens get on and be the head of Greens. And that's, I think, had been a huge benefit to the golf club and that work sort of continues on, that plan is still being implemented. Mm. Um, that our, our now recent head of Greens has been on the committee under that person, seen how he's done it, and I think that sort of legacy continues. I think that's really, really good. Um, similarly, we've got a um, very active honorary treasurer who is like an exceptionally um, successful uh, financier and has brought a lot of finance expertise that we just couldn't afford as a golf club if we were going to pay for it, um, and does a huge amount of work in terms of um, the budgeting for the club, making sure the club's on budget, making sure we're spending money in the right areas, just like really, really top level stuff. And I know is a big help to the general manager, but is not there counting the pennies on a day to day basis. Um, so I think that if you've got if you've got good people who understand what the role is, then it's a, it's a huge benefit. Yeah, I, I do think that that knowledge has has got to be the key thing, though, and if. You know, sometimes I think committees bloat because um, lots of people want to be involved in various aspects of the club and then suddenly you've got a, a, a subcommittee, for example, that's got basically half the golf club on it and I don't think that helps anyone because you just end up in meetings over meeting over meeting and I do think that in every area, the sort of the skills that you can bring, the qualifications that you can bring, the knowledge, experience that you can bring should be the key thing mm -hmm. rather than I'm just keen to volunteer. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a distinction there that we sort of didn't get into a little bit earlier on. Yeah, massively is yeah. But as in, it, as, as skip, the right skills, the skills audit, the right person. It shouldn't just be who's held their hand highest. Or but, but I still think that happens to an extent. Yeah, because I think, yeah, because I think clubs go cranky and of thank God for that. We've got people who are actually wanting to yeah. wanting to participate. Well, well, what are you adding? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. What are you going to bring to the party? Like these clubs make you interview to be a member and then just get you on the committee willy-nilly. So I think, yeah, that's massively valid. Um, and then I think, like to go back to make the opposite point of um, what we were saying earlier, because there are two sides to it, is that like these people are representative of the membership. So it's a member's club at the end of the day. So the member's voice has to be heard some, in some way. Uh, and yes, you can do surveys, but uh, like... You want to feel like that the club is being run by the people who are there playing golf, who love the club and have done for years and years and years. So I think that that is 
there's something in that, um, there's something ethereal about it as well as uh, practical. I think it's a massively difficult task. I think yeah. that's one of the most difficult tasks because in every club um, you'll have a section that shout louder than others and the majority just get on with it yeah. and just and just play their golf. So you don't necessarily know what they think and you've got to be able to you've got got to be able to separate the noise yeah. um, to figure out what's actually important and not just what your albeit perhaps maybe long serving very valued members have got on their plate and yeah, yeah. that at this point. So I think I've written down five things which are my top tips. Okay. Uh, Get listening, golf clubs. So I think I've got I've got keep it tight. So I think like at the back, like football. Yeah. I mean in terms of numbers, so don't let it become don't let committees become sort of sprawling things. Uh, so we have like we don't want a dictatorship where the general manager just decides to chop trees down without asking anybody. But nor do we want a sort of um, uh, a sort of total democracy where everything goes to referendum, where every member gets a vote on every decision. We need something in between. So we need, we need something similar to like the Roman consulate, where we have like a, a small group of trusted advisors. Um, and I think that's, Senate, yeah. that's how it should operate. Um, I think committees should meet frequently um, because that speeds up the decision-making process. Uh, so I would be a massive advocate of shorter, more frequent meetings. Do them remotely. Uh, I think this balance of skills thing that we're talking about is like massive. Like, so rather than having uh, subcommittees, why not have a marketing person, a finance person, an HR person, etc., etc., on one committee? I think that would be the way to do it. Uh, I think trying to make the role of committee member clear and where the committee's job and the general manager's job starts and ends is like huge. And there's loads of stuff on GCMA England Golf about that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, so there you go, that's my five tips. Very solid advice indeed. You've just been putting off the last, what, 44 minutes though for your appointment with Destiny. Well, I think we've managed to have a credible chat about the role of committees uh, and now I'm about to have all of that credibility undermined by blanking in this advanced rules quiz. Yeah, I actually got one of these wrong. Oh, great. I, I did, yeah, I didn't, I didn't spend as much time. I sort of flitted over it a little bit and made an assumption. So um, I'll tell you which one I got wrong. I, I got it right when I actually looked at it properly. But um, yeah, how difficult is this? So these questions, we're going to do eight. Eight? Eight, because a couple of them are very quick. And um, listen, look, if this, is, if this starts going on, we'll reduce it. <laughs> oh, God. It's not mastermind. I mean, I don't want you to be thinking there for 15 minutes. But So these are taken from the um, RNA's website um, on their advanced rules quiz. Um, I think you'll do all right, actually. I think you'll do all right. But let, let's get stuck straight into it. Question one. Manufactured ice is not temporary water. True or false? What? Manufactured mm -hmm. ice? Is manufactured ice temporary water? Like, like this has been in, the, in a drink. So if someone chucks some ice on the floor and your ball's like in amongst it. Yeah, is it temporary water? No. It's correct. Manufactured ice is an obstruction. Yeah. It's not temporary water. One out of one. Uh, question two. On the putting green, a player addresses the ball with their club anchored directly against their body. However, during their backswing, the player moves the putter from the anchor point and continues the stroke with the club no longer anchored. What is the ruling? Is there A, no penalty, B, one penalty stroke, play the ball as it lies, C, 
two penalty strokes, play the ball as it lies. So can you start off anchored and then become unanchored and then complete the stroke unanchored? That's essentially the question. So it's basically saying, can you... So could you rest... I'm trying to think about it on the full stroke because it would be the same rule. So Do you want a hint? Yeah. It depends. So you, you need to think about the definition of stroke. Oh, uh, yeah. So it knows no penalty. It's because the stroke hasn't even started. It's correct, because because a stroke is the forward movement of the club made to strike to ball. Well, I was actually going to say, because uh, if it was in the full stroke, if someone said, could you, in your address position, could you like rest the butt of the club on your knee? Of course you could, because why wouldn't you be able to do that? Question three. This is a long one. <laughs> in stroke play, a player has interference to their stance from an immovable obstruction. They determine their nearest point of complete relief using a five iron, as that's the club they would have used had the immovable obstruction not been there. They drop the ball within one club length of that point, no nearer the hole. The ball settles down in the rough, so the player changes club and plays the ball out onto the fairway with a sand wedge. What is the ruling? There is A, no penalty, B, one penalty stroke, C, two penalty strokes. No penalty. Is correct. Is correct. Once the ball is dropped, it's back in play, so the RNA's website. You can then decide what stroke you will make. That in stroke includes the choice of club, and that can be different from the one that would have been yeah. made from the ball's original spot had that condition not been there. So three out of three. This is this is great stuff. I'm, I'm now thinking eight's all right actually. <clears throat> Question four: A player realizes that their putter shaft became bent when they slammed it into the ground after scoring an eight on the previous hole. They want to continue to use the club with the bent shaft. What is the ruling? A, they can continue to use it in its damaged state for the rest of the round. B, it's now non-conforming and can't be used again. Or C, they can only use the club again during the round if it's repaired back to its original state. <coughs> Think about it. This is so annoying because I know there's a rule about this, but I don't know what it is. Can you continue to use the club in its damaged state? Is it now non-conforming, put it away, or you can use it again only if it's repaired back to its original state? So know that you can repair a club back to its original state, I know that's allowed. Mm. That's the answer, you can repair it back to its original state. You can continue to use it. You can continue to use the club in its damaged state for the rest of the round, think about it. Think about a bent five iron. You can still use it, right? Yeah. So, but okay. It's incorrect. Unfortunately. Yeah. Fine. Oh, sorry. Uh, if a conforming club is damaged during a round, it is treated as conforming and may still be used for the rest of the round. Uh, question five: In stroke play, a player removes an out of bounds stake, which interferes with their swing. What is the ruling? No penalty. Two penalty strokes unless they replace the stake to eliminate any improvement and restore the original conditions. Or C, player gets two penalty strokes but does not need to replace the stake. You can't move an out-of-bound stake because it's a boundary. You can move a lateral stake. So what are the options? There is no penalty. The player gets two penalty strokes unless they replace the stake to eliminate any improvement and restore the original conditions. Or they get two penalty strokes but don't need to replace the stake. Right, so they, are, so they can take it out and choose to take two penalty strokes or they just put it back and they don't get a penalty. So this is before they hit the shot, basically, I was saying. Uh, 
you can't choose to take you can't choose to take a penalty, can you? Put it back and no penalty. It's correct. Yeah. Let's think about that one. You can't move a boundary object to improve your conditions affecting the stroke. You Same as a tree, isn't it? But you can avoid a penalty by putting the stick back to eliminate any improvement. Yeah. Um, if the colour of a penalty area has not been marked or indicated as yellow or red by the committee, it is treated as a yellow penalty area, true or false? No, it's the opposite, it's treated as red. It is correct, it is false. It is not treated as a yellow penalty area. If the colour has not been marked, it is red. Uh, number seven. In stroke play, unaware that one side of a double green has been declared a wrong green by the committee, a player takes two putts from the wrong green before the pole comes to rest on the putting green. What is the ruling? A. No penalty as the player was aware it was a wrong green. B. The player gets two penalty strokes. Or C. The player gets four penalty strokes. I've never ever come across the term wrong green before, so that's one thing. All right. So I'm about to learn something. Um, I've always wondered at St Andrews. Why? I don't think it supplies at St Andrews actually, but I don't, I've always wondered why they don't ever put the flags on the wrong green to see if they can create some new angles. Um, so if it's why would it be declared a wrong green? You played a wrong green it's just for uh, I bet it's the only reason I think that wrong green would be relevant is for priority of play. You don't need to worry about why Sorry. it's a wrong green. It is a wrong green, so you take your you need to take your. Um, you need to think about what happens if you play from a wrong green. Yeah, yeah but so I'm think so I'm saying, right, in the St Andrews example, um, sixteen and uh, whatever three are double is a double green, right? Fifteen and three. So, oh, 18, eighteen, sorry, because it does. Yeah, fifteen and three is a double green. Yeah. So if I'm playing the fifteenth and I end up on the third green side of the green, then I can still put. Yeah, but the committee could make the third part of it a wrong green. Yeah. If they wish to. Which they delineate with like some like dots or something. Yeah. So I've putted from there and I've had two putts and you're saying so then the question is, is it a penalty two penalty strokes per putt, or is it two penalty strokes for playing from the wrong green, albeit I've done it twice? So I think you're leading me down the path of it being a penalty, so I'm going to go for penalty. I can't think of any other rules of golf where you'd have double, du double bubble, so I'm saying it's two-shot penalty. It's four. Oh. It's four, and let me tell you why. It's because you get two penalty strokes from each stroke made from that area. Well, yeah, I understand that, but and what if you yeah, first you've put, got out of this? So you've got, you've, got to think of it as, you've got to think of it as each swing being a separate act. Yeah, right. Is it's that the one you got wrong? One, no. To this is the one that I got wrong. So I thought that a double, uh, the wrong green thing might just be a thing that establishes uh, right of way. Yeah. But it's not. I didn't quite get the question right on this one. Um, I didn't quite read the question properly, which is why I got it wrong. But let's see how you do. In stroke play, a player played from outside the teeing area and hit the ball out of bounds. They go to correct the mistake by playing another ball from the correct teeing area. What is the ruling? The player's next stroke will be their third. B, it will be their fourth, or C, it will be their fifth. Is it in stroke play? So they get two for um, wrong going in front of the markers, and then they've hit it out of bounds. The ball, it, it, so 
that ball is effectively in play with the two shot penalty and then it's stroking distance on top because they've hit it out of bounds so it's hit it two shot penalty three stroke four he'll be their fifth which is what I did but it's wrong what? it's wrong you get you only get two penalty strokes the next stroke from the tee is their third the ruling is that the ball played from outside the teeing area was not in play because you played from outside of the teeing area so the fact that it came out of out of bounds is irrelevant and that stroke doesn't count but if I hit it from outside the playing area I don't hit it out of bounds that's just a two shot penalty in it but then you have to correct the mistake you have to hit it again yeah so the out of bounds is irrelevant Right, you're adding penalty strokes for the out of bounds, but the ball's never out of bounds because it was never in play. It was never in play. I, I actually got that wrong myself. So I thought it was. I, I thought it was fifth because I did exactly what you did. I went up oh, two penalty strokes from playing outside of the teeing area. Then the ball's gone out of bounds. Then there's penalty of you know stroke. So penalty of stroke and distance. So if I'm playing with you and you say, "Oi, you've gone from outside the penalty area," and I've hit it gloriously down the middle, yeah. you say you have to replay that and you have to add two penalty shots on. I'm nodding. Yeah. Can you just say yeah, so? I'm nodding yes. <laughs> you did all right, I think you got five. Which is okay, because there were some hard ones in there. I mean, there were some, there were some tough ones in there. As I say, I mean, I got, I got the last one wrong. And I am very, very qualified. <laughs> and even I, I, I understand why. Um, yeah, I mean, I've never heard of that. Uh, I've never heard of that wrong green thing. What was the other one I got wrong? Uh, it was the one about um, conforming club. Yeah, yeah. So I've sort of new. Yeah. So a wrong green. The easiest way to describe this to you is in winter at the moment. So if if your club is playing off temporary greens, then the actual green is a wrong green. Got you. You have to take relief. From a wrong green, oh, yeah. you don't have any choice. If you play from a wrong green, it's it's a penalty, yeah, yeah. and that's probably the easy way to explain it at the moment. With yeah, it is. It's good. It's brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, now we'll have to think of some other ways to befuddle you with rules. Because I quite enjoyed that. I feel oh. like we're getting your knowledge up there, and and actually, you you should take some comfort because there were some tricky ones in there that you got right. I am enjoying the rules quiz. Uh, I also enjoyed that chat about committees. Thought it was pretty pretty good stuff. Right, thank you for listening. Please give us a subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Speak to you next week. Cheers, Tom. Bye.